Hey, Eric. I just tried to call you. I'm good. I got hung up on the fifth floor security. <laughs> they wouldn't let you in. They wouldn't let me in on the ground floor. Yeah. I didn't have. I didn't have my. I don't have my badge. So you ended so up they on let the me up to the floor. fifth, yeah. where I had to talk my way into a security guard to let <laughs> me in up here. And I had to. Sh- I didn't have any other <laughs> means but to do it. I tried calling you. Yeah. Figured you'd be busy. Sorry. And I showed him the website that had the pictures of the board of directors and said, this is, this is me, this is me. And he's like, did okay. that work? It did work. But he said things were a little sensitive about ID badges. So. Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In the next two episodes, we're going to be taking a special in-depth look at a group of incredibly talented individuals, each with a uniquely impressive professional history. And what do all these people have in common? They are all members of the Nordstrom Board of Directors. Okay, so today I'm going to talk to as many of our board members as I can. And we're going to have a little episode that talks about, first of all, who the Nordstrom Board of Directors is, what a board of directors does, and how that all comes to be. I think the misunderstanding a lot of people have when they meet me or ask about our company, they say, well, that's great, you own Nordstrom. That's partially true. My family owns a decent sized chunk of the stock, but it's not a majority of it. And we are a public company. We've been a public company since 1971. We've got a responsibility to perform as a company and have an outside board of directors and all the governance and everything that goes with that, follow all kinds of rules and regulations. And we are not entitled just to do whatever the heck we want to do because our name's on the building. So, okay, we have a board of directors. My brother, Eric, and I are on it. But we have, gosh, what is it? Nine other members, 10 or almost soon to be 10 other members on board. And so today I'd like to introduce you to each of our board members and share a bit about their impressive backgrounds. The first board member I'd like to introduce you to is Stacy Philpott, who spent several years on the executive team at Google and is the former CEO of TaskRabbit. So Stacy, thanks for being on the Nordy Pod. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Next up on our prestigious list of board of directors here at Nordstrom, we have Amy Teener, who has spent a long time at Google and currently sits as the chief accounting officer and corporate controller. Amy, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. All right, next up, we've got Eric Sprunk. And Eric joins us after a long and storied career at Nike, where he's held some top leadership positions, including Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President of Global Product and Merchandising. Eric, thanks for coming on the Nordy Pod. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. We also have Atticus Tyson here with us. And Atticus joins us from Intuit, where he is currently Senior Vice President of Product Development and the Chief Information Security and Fraud Prevention Officer. Atticus, thanks for being here. You're welcome, Pete. Thanks for having me. Next, we've got Glenda McNeil, 
president of Enterprise Strategic Partnerships at American Express. You've been actually one of the longer tenured board members we have currently, isn't that right? It is, which is pretty surprising because I was the least tenured for a couple of years. <laughs> Next up, I want to introduce you to Mark Tritton, who has held some large leadership roles at Nike, Timberland, was the executive vice president and chief merchandising officer for Target, was president and CEO for Bed Bath & Beyond, and even spent some time with us at Nordstrom as our president of the Nordstrom Product Group. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here. Next, I'd like to welcome back Jim Donald. Jim was actually on the Nordy Pod way back in episode 35 and talked all about his impressive career, including his time as CEO of Starbucks, Pathmark, Extended Stay America, and Albertsons. We've been super lucky to have Jim sharing his extensive knowledge and expertise with us here on the Nordstrom board. So Jim, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be back. The next board member I'd like to introduce you to is Kirsten Green. Kirsten is the CEO and founder of the super successful investment firm, Forerunner Ventures. Kirsten, thanks for being on the podcast. Pete, thanks for having me. See, it's off to such a great start already. That was really good. <laughs> and no episode about the board of directors would be complete without actually talking to the chair of the board. So here we are with Brad Tilden, former CEO of Alaska Airlines and chairman of the Nordstrom board. Brad, thanks for being on the Nordy Pod. Thanks for having me, Pete. I've listened to several of these podcasts, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how this actually goes when I'm in the hot seat and the rest <laughs> of the board members are in the hot seat. Yeah, well, I'll try to make it not too hot. It'll be, this should be comfortable. So I want to start by giving everyone an idea about the composition of our board, who they are, what they've done, and what they really bring to the party. There's a diversity of experiences that is super beneficial to Nordstrom. The other thing that emerged is kind of a coincidental thing, I suppose, but it's when you listen to everyone's career story and their career journey, it's as if they all have a similar trajectory of having very humble beginnings, have worked super hard to accomplish really impressive things, have worked with great companies, and really have achieved quite a bit in their career. So let's turn it over to the board. Why don't you each tell us a little bit about your background and what brings you to a place where you're on a board like Nordstrom? My story sort of begins in another continent. I'm Australian, uh, I'm now American, uh, but I started working in retail when I was 15. So it's been a 45 year journey of working in and around customers and floors and products and brands. And I worked all the way through college and I actually trained to be a English history teacher and I have the degree, but I just fell in love with retail. I'll give you a quick background, 55 plus years at retail, supermarkets, hospitality as well. Uh, hotel chains and coffee shops. So, so you're you're pretty humble guy. But if you could kind of do a little bit more recounting, like you glossed over quickly. Well, you know, I was in coffee, grocery, and hospitality, and here I am. Well, I started cleaning restrooms on the midnight shift, and then I got promoted to throwing groceries. Yeah, you come a long way. Then I, then I <laughs> got promoted to like an assistant manager. I, so I said I like this. I went in to become general manager of of large supermarket chains. I became the CEO of Pathmark. Became the CEO of Starbucks and then ran extended stay hotels, and then finished where I started at Albertsons when I was called back to basically run that company. But all along the way, I liked the fact that, that, that you could lead people to do things that they never thought they could do before. And that became sort of my, 
modus operandi. As you mentioned, I, I met Intuit, and for those who may not know,、uh, Intuit is the maker of、uh, TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mailchimp, Credit Karma.、Uh, I've been at the company about 22 years. And currently, I'm accountable for all cybersecurity, fraud prevention, technical compliance, and general IT functions. So I've been at Google now for about ten and a half years, and really had the opportunity and the luck, if you will, to kind of grow with the company, which has been exciting to see them. Kind of evolve and change over the ten and a half years that I've been there. And I've been at American Express. It's a crazy number, but for thirty-four years. Wow! And it's been really a fun opportunity for me. I, my portfolio is very diverse. You think of an industry、uh, where large companies exist or fast-growing companies,、uh, they sit in my portfolios.、Uh, my background is in tech. I spent the last twenty years as an executive. I spent several years at Google as an executive. I ran TaskRabbit. I was the CEO. Stacy, can you talk a little bit about where you're from and you know, where you went to school and kind of what got you to a place? I mean, it's one thing to say, "Oh yeah, I was at Google, then I'm CEO of TaskRabbit, and I'm off and running." There's a lot of things that had to have happened before that to get you in a position where you can be considered a real leader in your industry and, and someone that would be on a big public board like ours. Well, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and I like to credit the women in my house for. Shaping who I am. At one point, it was four generations of women. It was my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mom, and me. We all, all living under the same roof. What? Oh yeah, we lived、oh. in a house with seven people, so it was it was a house full. Wow. <laughs> But Grammy and my mom really taught me about independence and community, and you know, really working hard and never letting anybody. Tell me that I can't accomplish something, and the belief that as long as you work hard, you can pretty much do anything you want to do. I started my career. I have a degree in accounting. Well, we got to go backwards for that. Where did you grow up, Eric? Oh, I grew up in Missoula, Montana, and actually ended up graduating from the University of Montana. That's where I got my、uh, degree in accounting, and I followed a really, really good lesson that my father had kind of instilled in me and and my mom, which was always make decisions that leave you with the widest aperture of Opportunity. So, like, if you do, if you don't leave Missoula, if you don't leave now, you might not ever get the chance to leave. So, and and if you leave and you don't like it, you can always come back. And that basic little premise weirdly guided a ton of the decisions I made in my career. So, but if we were talking to like the fourteen-year-old Amy Tina, would you have said, "Look, my career ambition is no I'm going to work <laughs> in accounting at a big company like Google." No, I wanted to probably be a teacher, like any you know most kids do, because that's the profession you see at the time. But when I went into college, all the newspapers were all saying that lots of people who were going to college, they were graduating with. Undergraduate degrees in liberal arts, and they were not getting jobs. And my parents were pretty clear that when I was finished with college, I needed to get a job. <laughs> I grew up on a farm in Louisiana, the last of eight kids. There were seven girls and a boy.、Uh, I was in college before I actually got on a plane, and so probably my earliest ambition was I would actually be a flight attendant because I could see the world. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I've been really lucky. I I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I was a big Nordstrom customer as a kid. I learned to fly as a young guy, and、uh, I also I never I never thought I'd get hired as a pilot. I've always loved flying. I've flown my whole life, but I、uh, I knew I could get a job in accounting because my older brother was an accountant. So I I went to PLU. It's a school near Seattle. Became an accountant. 
went to Alaska Airlines and I sort of uh, rose through the ranks there. And uh, as you mentioned, I did end up in a leadership role there. So how long were you the CEO at Alaska Airlines? Uh, nine years. Yeah, when I was going to school, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, as I was a senior in high school, we got Apple IIs in the computer lab. And so it was a long time ago. But when I really got introduced into computers, it was a summer internship I was doing at NASA Ames. And I saw these guys over in the corner crunching data on a PDP-11. And I just asked them, you know, what are they doing? And they were coding in Fortran and analyzing all of our data. And I got really interested in what they were doing because it was giving us insights uh, in, into the study. And so I've always been interested in how do we use technology to make lives better? I was never just a complete computer geek. It was always about for, for a purpose. I had decided I wanted to go to business school and had a dream that I wanted to be on Wall Street. It was like, if I'm going to be in business, right, in my pigtails, if I'm going to be in business, I should be in the pinnacle <laughs> of the um, center of business in New York City. My first real job was as a retail stock analyst. And that was really my first experience in the investing world. And I think I, I fell in love with the dynamic dynamics of consumer businesses. And then I had sort of a mid-career, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I really was honest with myself in that I loved being an investor. I loved having the opportunity to be curious every day and think about connecting dots across different data points and different trends. But I really longed for something that had more personal interaction. It was a journey and I actively found my way towards venture capital, which is the segment of the investing market where Forerunner operates. Started in, a, at the time, a big eight accounting firm, Pricewaterhouse, now Pricewaterhouse Coopers. They started in their Portland office. Nike was a client, so I was put on the Nike client right away. I kept Nike as a client and then Nike asked me, hey, would you, we are expanding in Latin America. We could really use a, a finance director. In hindsight, it was a weirdly torturous decision for me. I remember at the time, it's like, oh man, being in public accounting is really cool. I could have a chance to be a partner in a public accounting firm. Looking back, I'm like, okay, so why was that such a tough decision? I was wearing three piece suits. I had a client that required me to wear a hat into their office. <laughs> a hat? Yeah, I, the, the partners in the sale office were giving me a, a little bit of trouble over like, you know, maybe some more wine, less beer sprunk and work on the haircut. And I was had a chance to go to Nike and they wear tennis shoes and jeans and a t-shirt to work even the executives i was like why why was that such a difficult decision in hindsight i had been working for nike running their retail in the asia pacific and was offered the opportunity to move to global headquarters in portland oregon and i thought i was going to go for five years but 22 years later here i am still and now an american citizen and then i was firstly vp of apparel and then group vice president of footwear and apparel for timberland and the thread there really was around companies with purpose that really cared about their customers. The airline business is a people business. It's about operating well, operating safely, operating on time, and most importantly, offering great customer service. And uh, we stole every idea we could from Nordstrom in those years. You know, it's, uh, it's Nordstrom is fantastic at customer service and it's just something we always tried to emulate. Yeah, I remember when you came on the board and to your point, 
there are a lot of parallels in terms of what happens in the airline business in Nordstrom, and that's the customer-centric part of it. And right. and I think the other thing that would happen, there was an amazing amount of people that worked at Nordstrom that ended up working at Alaska Airlines <laughs> at a certain point, right? It's totally. It, I, we, we loved, uh, if we could hire someone away, we loved it because we knew how they were um, raised. And yeah, uh, the people at Alaska won the J.D. Power Award for the best customer satisfaction in the industry for 12 consecutive years. So it, it was... It was something they were really good at and really proud of. Um, in 2009, I got offered a fantastic role by some guy called Pete Nordstrom, um, <laughs> be the president of MPG. And for those of you who don't know, that's Nordstrom Product Group and had an incredible run there. And then uh, I got an, an incredible opportunity again. It was hard to leave, but I became the chief merchandising officer for Target and then was asked to head up a turnaround with Bed Bath & Beyond, a group of nine companies there. And during that period, you guys approached me to be on the board and I was really honored because I have such a deep love for the brand and the, and the people. But to not manage it, but govern it as part of a really mature board was a really great opportunity. So, you know, we our paths had crossed a little bit before you joined the board, but why don't you talk about the serendipity, I guess, that lent itself to you being invited to join our board? Well, that is a good question because there's a couple of different threats. Nordstrom is a brand I've known ever since I was a kid. I, I remember that we would do... Uh, you know, shopping for uh, new school clothes. And I remember just feeling so welcomed by everybody at Nordstrom. And I, I just, it, it, I thought it was going to be this super fancy experience. And it was, but I, ne I never felt out of place. I also remember, and this is important to the story, going to um, Nordstrom in Somerset in Michigan every Easter. And it was like our treat. We didn't have a lot of money growing up and it was our treat to get something nice to wear for Easter. And I, I just looked up to the store, the customer experience and how things were laid out. And it was just this one thing we did as a family and it was kind of a splurge for us. And so the opportunity for Nordstrom came up and I, I like fashion. I have a lot of respect for the Nordstrom brand. Um, interesting story is my husband had one major shopping event a year, and it was the Nordstrom anniversary sale. And so I felt right? I had no choice. <laughs> it's absolutely right. Searching for a board is a long process, right? It's a lot about networking and getting to know people out there and in the industry. And as well, because Google's so big, I had to find some a board that wasn't a competitor. So retail is a great opportunity for me to look in, in the retail space and Nordstrom when they when you guys called. Nordstrom's always been a company I've loved. It's a store I've shopped at forever. The opportunity came up. I knew somebody who'd been on the Nordstrom board and I think you all were looking for in particular a technical person to be on the board. And so I was super interested in the opportunity to help a company that I think is a really strong brand that I believe in the mission. And candidly, I was not looking for board roles. Um, it's been great that there's been more initiative generally in the industry to get female and diverse people on boards and people with different businesses experiences. So I'd gotten a number of calls about board opportunities, but when I was presented with the opportunity to talk to you all about a board, I just couldn't resist that. Shelly Archambault called me and said, hey, we're looking for 
a board member for Nordstrom and do you have any ideas? And I was like, me? <laughs> Did she mean that she was looking for you to have ideas or was that her clever way of asking you if you'd be interested? It's her clever way of asking because then she goes, of course you, but you're busy because you're running a company and you already have one public company board. And I said, and I told Shelly the story of my childhood and how we used to do the shopping every Easter. And I said, it would be my honor to have the opportunity to join this board. It's an iconic brand and company in retail. I I knew you and some of the players from Nordstrom from my experience at Nike. I'm an avid shopper of uh, of the brand, and and it was a real like it was an honor. Like Although I don't feel like we've gotten much of your shoe business because every time I see you, you're wearing Nikes, and I'm pretty sure you got those at the <laughs> Nike I, store. I have, I have a slightly better discount at the <laughs> Nike store still than I do at the Nordstrom store. I believe that to be true. At this point, how many Nikes do you own or in your home? Oh man, right now, a couple hundred. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So if you tell your friends, yeah, I'm, I'm now on the Nordstrom board, invariably is the follow-up question, tell me what a board actually does. So talk about what a public board does. A public company board works hard. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> you guys do. So a public board does a few things. Like, first of all, so that we are representatives of the shareholders, right? So we're really there to bring oversight and governance over the company. We're not there every day to run the company. That's not our job. You and your brother and the other leaders at Nordstrom run the company. The board does not run the company. The board has a governance responsibility. We're not there to make the decisions. We're there to probe and, and validate. And we also give feedback on, gee, we'd like to hear a little bit more here, or this is worrying us. We want, we want to watch this more. But you're not saying, hey, Pete, I think we need more of the blue size 36 uh, AG jeans. You know, it's like. <laughs> well, you can give me that feedback if you want, Brad. It's okay. <laughs> when boards start to overstep the governance perspective and kind of think of themselves as the operating board, like if, if your board all of a sudden was like, okay, hey, we know how to run this company. Why don't you, 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 you got to be doing this. You got to be doing that. Why, why is it, why are you making that person that job? Yeah, why, why are you buying you, that brand and why, not this why, brand? Why are you divested it? Like yeah. the, the, the dynamic in the boardroom is bad for everybody, including the shareholders. Do a double click into that. What, what does governance really mean? And how is that implemented on a public company board like Nordstrom? The way I think about governance is the shareholders expect the board to protect them. What are you doing to ensure that you're protecting that asset for your investors, their stock? The, the board is there not to just accept what management brings in. We're there to challenge. And, and I think the most important thing we can do as a board is ask really good questions. And I have a lot of empathy for you guys, the management team, as well as the board about Sometimes you get asked questions and pushed in the wrong direction and you get asked things that are so nitty gritty that you shouldn't be asked. And so I've always thought about how can these questions add value, provoke, support, stimulate conversation as opposed to judge. You have a responsibility to come to the meetings prepared, to understand the business, to get to know the management team and understand the challenges of the business. Curiosity is not a nice to have, it's a must have. You have to be curious, you have to ask questions. If you're just gonna sit there and acknowledge stuff, then you're not doing what you need to do as a board member. And it's really, it's, it's to select coach, mentor, the leadership of the company, primarily the CEO, but CEO, president, the top leadership. And just provide input and insight to management as they run the business. But in a, in a focused way. 
uh, you know, a board is not wandering off on a lot of different topics. A board is a board is focused. You know, we have a calendar of things we go through throughout the year, and uh, there are timely events that a company, a public company, has to do. And so, as a board, we're making sure that those things are happening on time. I've been on boards, and I've also had companies that had board members that read the board information, maybe on the plane ride up to that board meeting, or first time they saw it was in the board meeting. It's not that doesn't work. We have to be prepared, just like it was an exam about what that management team is trying to tell us. And honestly, for folks who are listening, you guys might give us six, 700 pages of material to read. <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah. have a lot of homework to do, that's for yeah. sure. So you, you read that stuff, you come prepared, you engage. A good portion of it is work that just needs to get done that we do on a routine basis audit and financial work and the committee work that happens. And then there's the conversations we have about the current environment, the current customer, the, you know, the future, what things should be prioritized, the changing market dynamics. And then finally manage risk, make, make sure that significant risks, risks that are, that are big in your company, your industry, make sure there's a plan in place. And that we're flagging those risks where relevant for investors so that they're aware that they're out there. So we spend a lot of time together. We have five meetings a year that last for multiple days and as many more triple times the interactions, you know, throughout the year on a number of different things that we're engaging with as a group. And then there's the one-off activity, you know, engagements that you have. We do a lot of work in the committee. Sometimes people wonder, well, what's going on in the committees? Is all these meetings are two days long and how are you spending your time? Well, that's really a lot of the work that's done in the committee so that we can use the general session to talk about strategy and really help you and Eric and give you the direction that you want and need from us in executing the strategy for the company. Today, I actually chair the NomGov committee. Uh, I've had the pleasure of being able to lead the search for new board members. I will tell you being the chair comes with some additional responsibilities, a little bit of a heavy weight in making sure that we bring on the right people. And I'm excited to say that I think we've brought on some really great talent from great companies that I think will set us up really well for the future. So what was that like when you're on the management side working with the board, which is, you know, pretty much the seat that I'm in. You know, I'm on the board, but I'm also you know, management. So talk a little bit about that relationship, what it's like being on the management side of that relationship. Depends on the board. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it does. And it depends on the board member. It's up to management to cultivate a relationship with the board and glean from the board their years of experience, not only in the business that they're in, but other businesses that the board members have been associated with. But I'll tell you this too, as a board member, it's up to the board member to cement that relationship too with management, so it becomes a two-way street. But but as a member of, of management, I was always open book for the board in terms of what was going on, how the company was performing, and I also made it a point to reach out regularly to each individual board member uh, to let them know what was going on and to let them know also that I respected what they did as an individual and not only as a group of board members. So you've been at companies where you've had to interact with boards and then you've been on boards. So tell me how you define a high functioning board. In all cases, a good board, a good board, this is gonna sound obvious, but I think it's still worth saying, really cares about the business. They care about 
the problem the business is solving or the customer the business is addressing. They are interested in how to be the best business in the sector that they're in and how to navigate a really, you know, a dynamic market. A high functioning board is one where you have people around the table who are low ego, high humility, meaning they check their titles at the door and they're really there in service of the board. A high functioning board is everybody can find their voice. Everybody feels like they have uh, something to contribute. That management listens to the questions, answers the questions, says thank you, that's a great question. The relationships within the boardroom amongst the board are healthy. People trust each other. People think that they are showing up with the best interest of the shareholders in mind, not with a, a different agenda or with their own agenda. I think a high functioning board is one where, as you've already said, it starts with diversity so that everybody does bring different opinions on the board and that people are giving those opinions in a constructive way. High functioning board is one where there's transparency and transparency in communications, it's frequent communications. They have to get along with each other. The board members have to respect each other. They have to give the, that particular board member the time to say things, and they have to stay in touch with each other, not just at quarterly board meetings. I make it a point on this board to reach out probably every other week to some board members to say, hey, how you doing? You know, we do a lot of work as a board ourselves on what is the best practice of a board. And you'll know, Pete, we had someone come in earlier this year and talk to we did an assessment of our performance, which actually ticked the box. We were doing great work. Uh, but also, too, like, how, what is a board really effective? And a lot of it was really about a board's ability to listen. Listening is probably what the board members are actually there for, to listen to what the management team wants to discuss and then apply their expertise to whatever those issues were. And when we speak, there should be thoughtful questions rather than telling and I think that's something that always sticks in my mind. I've sat on the other side as a CEO and had the board say, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And I go, well, actually, that's our decision. We'll, we'll, we'll work that out. But I really appreciate the feedback. And, and my team would always say, why can't they frame that differently rather than just telling us what to do? That's not their job. And I think having that sense of duty and balance in and care in how you approach that, that's really important to provide the right kind of channeling of thought and action to support the management team. But you try to balance what's best for the employees, what's best for the executive team, what's best for the CEO, what's best for the shareholders, and you hope that you're in an environment where you feel like you can balance those out. There's always an executive session at the end of a board meeting and people get scared about the executive session because that's when the non-independent directors, which is the management team, leaves the room and the independent directors sort of have a conversation about the meeting and what happened. And a high-functioning board is one where that conversation is constructive and we find ourselves realizing, actually, we brought up most of these topics already when the management team was there. And if we can do that, and there's only a couple of things, maybe one thing or two things that we have to discuss without them in the room, then we've got the right dynamic. And so we all have to move towards that goal and the board itself should want that. And above and beyond else, Pete, board members have to be accessible. 
and they have to be accessible to the organization because after all, it's their way of sharing their expertise and it's just not with the executive team but with members throughout the entire organization. And you have fun. A, a public company boardroom, that boardroom should still be a positive, enjoyable experience. And yours is, by yeah. the way. Well, thanks. I want to say this too. This is a very good board that we have here. We all come from different backgrounds. But, but what you don't see in, in, in when you're not there or Eric's not there is that, that the seriousness and the passion that this particular board has for what it is that all of you do. And we always want to make sure we're of the utmost help in helping you and the team get to where you want to go. It's very transparent. We're very comfortable in being honest, saying the good things, saying the tough things. And we work it out together. And I think that that is a really positive relationship that helps the business. You guys do a great job of setting a tone in the boardroom, the dynamic in the boardroom, which is what you, which as a board member, is really, really important because not every board meeting is going to be, is always going to be good news. And here's all the great stuff. Sometimes you got to actually help you and Eric and the team solve problems and ask uh, difficult questions and you want the dynamic in the boardroom to be good and you guys do a really good job of letting us be provocative and respecting the questions and answering them and being transparent. My experience here has been it's it's a deeply engaging experience and I think heartening to know that boards work in that way and that they're not just meetings. I think you guys have done a great job of picking a diverse set of board members with backgrounds that complement each other and that complement you guys. And as a result, you know, I think we have really, really interesting conversations and we get all the issues, I think, on the table, as well as it's a fun group of people, right? We actually all like being together, which makes it enjoyable at the same time. And I've really enjoyed getting to know everybody and these are people I probably wouldn't have otherwise come across in my day-to-day -day interaction. So that's been unique and something I've really valued about being on this board. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash Podcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. 
And make sure to tune in next time for part two of the Nordstrom Board of Directors. I think a lot of these scandals, a lot Enron and a lot of the, I mean, boards have really been exposed for not doing their job and it's cost their companies a bankruptcy or the loss of all the equity or what have you. And so board members take their jobs far more seriously in 2023 than I think they did 30 or 40 years ago. And so we need to think about the fact that what got us here might not get us where we need to be. There is a great opportunity that I think is being under leveraged to separate from this kind of storyline that people have like, hey, multi-brand is kind of, you know, it's dying out. You hear people say, yeah, well, you know, Nordstrom's Coles and Macy's, these multi-branded uh, department stores, you know, they're really on the decline. I'm like, how's it? You know, it's insulting, frankly. <laughs> we'll be diving deeper into some of the challenges that we face as a group and get a little bit of advice for Nordstrom next time on the Nordy Pod. Nordy Pod.